welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. We're in the end of Romans 5 tonight, so if you guys want to turn to Romans 5, 12. What's really cool about the timing, and I can't take total credit for this, is that starting right after Easter, we're going to be in Romans 6. It talks about Jesus' resurrection resurrects us. And so we're going to start a series right after Easter that'll be in Romans 6, 7, and 8. And it'll be about how Jesus's death and resurrection allows us to really be transformed. So it's a series on how to change from Romans 6, 7, and 8, which I've been really looking forward to doing. So the timing couldn't be better. Let's pray. Father, as we open your word, we come expectant. We come expectant not because of my gifts or abilities. We come expectant because... Your Holy Spirit is here. Your Holy Spirit, He lives within us. Your Holy Spirit comes and meets with us regularly as we gather together as your family, as we're gathered around your table, Lord. You feed your children, and you feed your children through the Word. You feed us through worship and fellowship. You feed us through the Lord's table. And so we come expectant to be fed and uh, thankful for that. And we just ask, Lord, that you would make our hearts good soil for the gospel. Lord, we pray that the enemy wouldn't pluck it out. We pray that the cares and worries of this world would not choke it out, but that our hearts would be good soil for this word. We pray that we would leave knowing that we have met with the living God. And we pray all this because only you can do it. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. And so we're in Romans 5 here, and Romans 5 takes a really big picture. It kind of shows us the big picture of the story of the world. And one thing I want to share with you is any worldview worth having should answer four questions. And the four questions any worldview should answer, whatever worldview you have, is where did we and all this come from? That'd be an important question for it to answer. What went wrong with us and the world? Because there's something wrong. What went wrong? How will the world be made right? And then how can we be made right? are four really important questions. So where did we and all the world come from? What went wrong with us and with the world? How can the world be made right? And how can we be made right? And what's really cool is this text will actually hit on all four of those questions because Paul is going to lead us into the great big story of the world. And he talks about it in two acts. There's a story of Adam and the story of Christ. And and the first question that, that we need to ask is, where did all this come from? And the answer is, guys, is that Genesis 1 through 3 shows us that the answer to this question is that a good and happy God, full of wisdom and love, created this whole universe, space, time, matter. He created all this to be a theater, to display his glory for the enjoyment of his creatures. Okay, I don't know what your worldview answer is for where did this all come from. That's the best possible answer. That a good and happy God full of wisdom and love, created this whole place as a theater to show his glory for our enjoyment so that we could enjoy him. Take a look at Genesis 1.26. God created human beings and he said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We have this amazing dignity of human beings here, right in the beginning of the Bible. Human beings were created to be the bearers of God's image, that we were created to reflect the glory and the goodness of God. We were also created to rule over the creation for God, created with a high role of ruling over the creation for God. And then we were also created with a very personal reason, is that God wanted us as his well-loved children. 
They're created to bear his image, to rule over creation, and to be his well-loved children. If you skip ahead to Genesis 2.15, it says, The Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. God had one very generous command. This is a garden full of things to eat, full of trees. And he just says, you can eat any of them, just not that one. Okay. It wasn't like you can only eat this one. You can only eat this one, you know, you know, organic gluten-free tree and you can't eat any of the other ones. No, he was like, you can eat of any of these trees, just not one. God made a very generous command. And Adam was given a really special role as the head of his family. This is before Eve was even created. Adam was told to work and to keep the garden. The Hebrew word there for work is a gardening term. And so he was there to to cultivate the garden, to to make a, a place that honored God and to build a culture there actually with the people, with his wife and later his kids, to cultivate a culture uh, around God. And that word to keep is a military term. So he's also called the guarded. He was called to keep the serpent out of the garden. So he's given this great role. Husbands, you too have been given that role. You too have been given the role by God to cultivate the garden of your home and to keep the serpent out. And what we see with Adam, though, is we see that Adam failed to lead and protect his bride and the rest of us by extension. He thought he knew better than God, what would make him happy, what would give him joy. And so he ate of the tree that he was forbidden to eat from. And of course, Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden. Now, I tell you all that because Romans 5, starting in verse 12, tells us how Adam's sin affected us and how Christ has come to reverse that. And I think it's really important to look at how Adam's sin affected us because it's not entirely obvious that Adam's sin would affect us. I think if you're reading the Bible for the first time and you read the story of Adam and in the garden stuff, you might just say, oh, too bad for him. Very sad. They got kicked out of the garden. It's more than that, right? It's too bad for us, right? His sin affected us. And how did it affect us? Look at verse 12 of Romans 5. Therefore, just as sin entered into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all have sinned. There's three things that happen in this text. First one is sin entered the world. We see that sin came into the world through one man. Because of Adam, sin entered the world. And because of that, this world is not paradise anymore. You guys are kicking it there in the sun, California weather. You guys are thinking, well, you know, it's pretty nice here. But this world, as we all know, as you get older, you find out this is not paradise. The world is hostile. You know, when you go camping, you have to bring like, you know, three trucks worth of equipment to stay one night in the desert, right? And the reason for that is the world is hostile. It's not paradise. Work is hard. You know, work is not easy. Relationships are difficult. Can I get an amen on that? Maybe you don't feel comfortable because of the person you're next to. But relationships are difficult. And also on top of that is we feel cut off from some sort of deeper meaning and fulfillment that we should have. We have this feeling like there should be something more. We don't really know what that thing is, and it seems kind of out of our reach. And that thing is that we're missing is God. Whether we know it or not, that, that sense of fulfillment, that sense of meaning that we can't quite grab a hold of, is that we're missing God. We've been kicked out of the garden. And this, so the second answer the answer to the second question is what went wrong with the world? And the answer is sin came into the world through one man. And that makes a lot of sense, guys. It makes sense of the fact that we know the world isn't the way it should be. You know, isn't it strange that we know it should be different than it is? Why? 
Because it was. It was different than it is. And we ha- we're haunted by Eden. We know that it was better at some time. We know that the things we're seeing here aren't normal, even though they're normal. And so sin entered the world. Sin also entered us. If you look at verse 12 at the end, it says, all sinned. We inherited Adam's sin. And I'm going to kind of break that down because that's kind of a shocking statement. We inherited Adam's sin. The theological term for this is original sin. It has two parts. We not only inherited Adam's guilt, we also inherited Adam's corruption. So not only were we born guilty in Adam, but we were also born corrupted. And I want to go through those with you real quick. We inherited Adam's first sin. If you look at verse 12, Paul's talking about Adam's sin, and he says at the end that all sinned, all of us sinned in Adam. It's even clearer in verse 19, where it says, for as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. Okay, And he's not talking there about corruption. He's talking about guilt, because look at further. It says, so by one man's obedience, many were made righteous. Just as in the gospel, we're made righteous in Christ by being credited with his righteousness, we were credited with Adam's sin. When Adam sinned in Genesis 3, we all sinned. That first sin was our sin. We were born guilty. That's half of what's called original sin. The other half is a half you're maybe a little more familiar with, which is that we inherited Adam's corruption. We inherited his sin nature. We were not born innocent, blank slate creatures with no propensity to evil, just wonderful little, you know, hippie children, right? They have no propensity for sin. You know, something like Rousseau would say. Rousseau had the idea that children are born really innocent and it's society that corrupts them. Interesting thing about him is that he dropped all of his kids off at orphanages right after they were born. So he must have found something going on there that wasn't right, but he he actually ditched his own children. So, so much for him believing that children are born innocent and wonderful. He didn't want his own. We're born with a pre-existing desire for sin. Psalm 51.5, David says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Ecclesiastes 7.29 says, God created man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Okay? I love in... Uh, G.K. Chesterton has a book called Orthodoxy, and in in that book, he he says it's really strange that people deny original sin because it's the most provable part of Christianity, right? It's the most provable part of Christianity that people are sinners. Human beings sin universally, immediately, continually, under all circumstances, against all hindrances, and in a rich variety of ways, don't we? Wouldn't you say that? Would you say that we, we sin universally? There's nobody that's like, oh, look at that. He's an exception. You know, like, never, right? No exceptions. We sin immediately. You know, those of your parents, you know, sin comes really immediately and you didn't really teach them that. We sin continually under all circumstances, no matter what the hindrances and in a rich variety of ways. Sinning is totally our thing. To say that human beings aren't sinful is to say like, it's like Rembrandt denying he's a painter. He's like, no, I'm not a painter. You're like, dude, these are all great. Are you sure? There's like tons of paintings here. We have sin all around us. And we're like, no, I don't think so. It's like, no, dude, you totally do this. Look at it. Right? We have had sin credited to us. We have had sin in us, in our sin nature. And then the third effect that we have is that death came in through sin. Look at verse 12. And death through sin. So death spread to all men because all have sinned. And so we see, even from the very beginning of the Bible, chapter 3, we see death entering because of sin. There's three kinds of death, really, that sin brings. It brings spiritual death. 
It brings physical death and it brings eternal death. It brings spiritual death. So we're born now after Adam, we're born spiritually dead. Ephesians 2.1 says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You remember how God, he warned Adam, he said, in the day you eat of it, you'll surely die. And then what? He doesn't die, but he did, right? He died spiritually. He has spiritual death. Spiritual death or spiritual deadness is a deadness to God. And I think if you guys all look at your own life experiences, you could point to a time. Some of you became Christians when you were very young, grew up in a Christian family. Maybe you don't remember this, but all of us who were like converts later on, we, we can identify with the fact that there was a time we were dead to God. It's an apathy towards God, right? It's a disinterest in God. It's a boredom with God. It's even an irritation with the things of God. You know, people bring him up and you're suddenly irritated. Why? It's a deadness to him. And we're born that way. And we have no interest in him until somehow God, through the Holy Spirit, reverses that deadness in us and makes us alive. And once we're alive to him and we see how desirable he is, of course we want him, right? When the deadness is removed, we're like, what was I thinking? He's amazing. He's beautiful. He's wonderful. I want him. And that's true of any of you. Even those of you who have grown up in a Christian family and you don't remember any time when you didn't believe, which is probably a fair number of you, there was a time when you were dead to him. And there was a time when he made you alive to him. You know, if you're alive now, you were born. You were reborn. So there's spiritual death. There's also physical death. Human death, guys, is not a natural part of God's creation. Human death is a consequence of sin. Paul here gives it as evidence that everyone has received sin from Adam. Look at verse 13. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death spread from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who is a type of the one to come. Human death is a physical picture, guys, of how we've been severed from our life in God. And it's a, it's a picture, it's an image that warns us of something even worse than physical death, which is eternal death. It's something that Jesus talked about. He called it the second death. And what, what physical death shows us is that like cut flowers or like a Christmas tree that's been cut off from its roots, we've been cut off from God. And we've been separated from this only source of life. And if we don't somehow reconnect to him by faith in Jesus Christ in our lives, then we end up separated from him forever. And that's what physical death shows us, is that there's something even worse, which is eternal death. Romans 6 says the wages of sin is death, and the final outcome of that death is eternal death. So that's the story of Adam, and that's the effects that have come upon us. And it's super illuminating, guys. I mean, I think that that explanation for why the world is the way it is makes a ton of sense. It makes a ton of sense out of the goodness and the beauty of life, and it's constant difficulties, right? It makes way more sense than any other worldview does. For example, if you believe in a completely naturalistic worldview, and you believe that we just came here by chance and time, and you, we came here by a process just of natural selection without any God involved at all, why are we upset when we see suffering and death? If suffering and death was the process that got us here, why don't we celebrate it? You know, why do we have such a problem with the strong eating the weak if we are the strong and we got here by that process, right? It makes sense of how we know that we've been cut off from some better thing. It's strange that we complain about things that are very normal. It's because we know that we were made for something more. We know that we've been cut off from Eden. Now, a few objections, okay? I think it's very reasonable to cover these. 
you might object and say, this sounds really unfair. Why should I be held liable for the sin of some guy thousands of years ago? Anyone? That's what I immediately say. You guys don't need this section. We'll just skip it. Okay? Nobody's, nobody's bothered. You're bothered. Okay, good. I'm bothered too. The answer is, is that Adam acted as our representative. The theological term for this is he was our federal head. Federal means covenant head. So he was our covenant head. He was the head of the human race. And so the things that he did reflected on us. God treats us as if we are bound to Adam as our covenant head. So that his first action there of sin was our action because we're in him. Okay, that whole idea of Adam being a covenant head for us and a representative and that we could be liable for something that he did is super offensive to 21st century Western people because we believe in individualism. We're very individualistic, and it's not all bad, okay? But we're very, very individualistic, a lot more than other cultures, um, a lot more than people that lived a long time ago. We're very individualistic. We have a very difficult time seeing ourselves as a part of a larger group with a representative. Uh, you know, it's really hard for us to believe that we're a part of a larger group with a shared guilt from a sin we didn't even do, okay? That's a hard concept for 21st century Western people, because that's what we are. And so for us to believe that we're a part of a greater whole, a human race, with a shared guilt over a sin we didn't do is a very hard concept for us. But guys, all I can tell you is that God considers us a part of a whole in Adam. Adam is our representative, and that his actions affected us. And you might say, well, that's not fair. It's unfair for someone else to represent me. Only I can represent me. Okay? Do you feel like that? Like, I'm the only one that can represent me. I can't have other people representing me. But you guys got to consider is that that's the way it works in everyday life. I mean, think about government, right? Um, you're a part of a body, a country. No man's an island. We're all part of a country. I think there's some people that get their own islands and make their own fake countries or whatever. But for the most part, every human being is a part of a country. Our country is headed by a representative head, a president. And what that president does affects you as if you did it. For example, president declares war against... Who should we declare war against? We're going against Canada because we want their water mainly. And so we're going to war against Canada. You can't say, well, like, I'm not at war with Canada. It's like, no, you are. We are at war with Canada because our representative head put us at war with Canada. I love that we're going to war with Canada. When I was in Mongolia, I was there for a couple of weeks as a veterinarian to train horse vets there. And there was a Canadian guy. And I didn't realize, like, how irritating we are to Canadians, you know? We're super irritating. Because we don't treat them like a real country. We, they're, like, they're the hat on our country or something like that. And uh, he said in their country, they had these big billboards. So, like, we're not selling our water to the U.S. and stuff. And I said, um, who said anything about us buying it? If we want it, we're going to come take it. And he goes, that's what I mean, you guys. <laughs> you know? But anyway, we're going to war with Canada. Okay. It's become really common for people lately, last few years, to say, not my president, right? We do it with the last one, we do it with this one, everybody's like, not my president. But he is, okay? And that's the part that bothers you, right? Is that he is. We've got a picture of this actually in the Old Testament. When David and Goliath went to fight, Goliath said this. He says, if he, David, if he kills me, we'll be your slaves. And if I kill him, you will be our slaves, Right? David acted as a covenant head of Israel. In a similar way, Adam's a representative of all of us. You might say, okay, but I don't really think Adam's a very fair representation of me. The way I'd answer that is that God specifically designed Adam to be our representative. So he probably is a good one. 
Okay, like he specifically designed Adam for this task, so probably a good one. You might say, well, you know what, if it's like that, fine, but at least I want to pick my own. And I would say, I've got good news for you. Romans 5 says you can pick your own. Romans 5 says, if you don't like Adam, if you want to say not my Adam, you can. Okay, you could ditch him as your representative. Take a look at verse 14, the end. It says that Adam was a type of the one to come. God has provided Jesus as a second Adam, as an alternative representative, as a a new covenant head of humanity. And so if you don't want Adam and you don't like where he's landed you, and who would, right? You can have Christ instead as your second Adam. That's good news, right? It's awesome. You were born united to Adam, but you can be reborn united to Christ. And you can trade all the things that Adam did for all the things that Christ did. And of course, all the things that Christ did are infinitely better. I'm going to read verses 15 through 19. I want you to notice how many times it says not like or how much more. You ready? Verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many die through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by that grace of God that the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through the one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, many were made righteous. I want to show you some awesome things Jesus has done in this passage. First one is, Jesus has left us far better off than Adam, obviously. Instead of condemnation, we had an Adam, we get justification in Christ. Instead of death in Adam, we get life in Christ. Instead of being made sinners in Adam, we've been made righteous in Jesus. It's amazing. And not only that, guys, but Jesus didn't just like return us to where Adam was before the fall. He didn't just do a reversal. He did more. Okay. Jesus did far more good to us than Adam did us harm. Okay? And I know it's hard to believe because Adam did us a lot of harm. Okay. But Jesus did us far more good than Adam did us harm. Jesus brings us to a state far better than Adam had before the fall. If you think about it, think about this. Think about in what ways. Will we, in the world to come, be in a better place than Adam was before the fall? And I thought of a few. You guys could probably think of a few. For one, the garden is a whole planet. That's great, right? So you got paradise, this garden that he was in. The whole world becomes like the Garden of Eden. The whole world is made new. You also go from a state where you could sin and ruin it, and Adam did, to being in a state where you can't sin and ruin it. That's a huge advantage, right? That's something that we're going to have in the world to come. You have a situation where the serpent's on the loose, and then you have a situation in the world to come where the serpent is forever removed. Isn't that amazing? That's a huge advantage. Jesus did us far more good than Adam did us harm. Here's a cool one, though, too, is that in the world to come, well, let me back up. Adam could only praise God for creation. In the world to come, we're going to be able to praise God for creation and redemption. And you guys realize how cool it is, how much more you know about who God is and how good he is because of redemption? Because of the fall and the cross and the resurrection, you have so much more understanding. You have so many more things you can praise God for, and we will in the world to come. 
Christ did us far more good than Adam did us harm. Also, Jesus' death covered far more than just Adam's first sin. Jesus didn't just die to remove the one first sin of Adam, the one trespass in verse 16. He died to remove all the sins that we've committed in our lives. Verse 16 says, many trespasses. And I just want to see you guys. So if you're still bothered, and I think it's reasonable, but if you're still bothered by original sin, just focus on the ones you did. Okay? You're like, oh, you know, being credited with Adam's sin really bothers me. It's like, just focus on the ones you did for now. You can come back to that later. But what's cool is that Jesus actually died for all those sins. We have plenty of them, and Jesus bled plenty to cover them all. Another thing that Jesus did in all this is that Jesus' reign of life that's coming, that's already started in the world and is coming, is going to be far more shocking than the reign of death that Adam brought. Verse 17 says how much more Jesus' reign of life will be than the reign of death. And I was just thinking about this. like We know this world's not right. We know that things are not good. But in some ways, we've kind of gotten used to it. We've kind of settled in. We've kind of started to feel like some of this is normal, and it's not. Jesus' reign of life, guys, is going to be shocking. It's going to be shocking when you see it. Imagine the whole world, our whole world being made new when Christ returns. Imagine our world free from disease and death and disorder and decay and depression and drudgery and dreariness and so many other D words. So many sad words that start with D that could keep going. He's going to make the whole world new. It'd be Jesus' reign of life. Have you guys ever seen Isaiah 25? You guys should look at it. Isaiah 25, verse 6, talks about what that our world with the reign of life is going to look like. This is what he says. Isaiah 25, 6 says this. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all people, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from the earth for the Lord has spoken. That's an awesome answer to the third question, by the way, which is how will this world be made right? I don't know of any worldview that has an answer like that. And this one's true. And now imagine yourself fully alive, right? Not only will the world be made fully alive, but imagine yourself fully alive. God's already started that process if you're a Christian. He, he's already taken away your uh, spiritual death to him. He's made you alive to him. That's why you're here. That's why some of you that are like in the sun, sun, are like cool with it. It's because you've been made spiritual life. And you have taste buds for him, right? You have desires for him. You know, there's a sweetness of God. You know, just hearing things about him makes you happy right? What is that? Is, is that your spiritual death has been removed. And not only that, but he's going to undo your physical death. You will not stay dead. Isn't that amazing? We're not going to stay dead. It's going to be reversed. We'll talk about that next week at Easter. And he's already canceled out your eternal death. Something you don't need to worry about. Isn't that amazing? Last thing that Jesus did that I want to point out here is that Jesus' obedience was far harder to do than what Adam failed to do. Look at verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many were made righteous. 
I love this. He talks about the cross here, and he calls it Jesus's one act of righteousness, right? And this this act of righteousness, and we're remembering today. Today is Palm Sunday, right? So we're remembering Palm Sunday is the day that Jesus came into Jerusalem. He intentionally, he said, I've got to go to Jerusalem. I've got an appointment. He had an appointment with the cross. He knew he had an appointment with the cross. He comes on Palm Sunday. He comes in. People are, you know, worshiping him and excited and stuff, but he knows what he's come to do. He's come to die. He had an appointment with the cross because like Adam, Jesus had a bride to protect, right? Like Adam, Jesus had a bride to protect. And and, and like Adam, Jesus was tempted in a garden in Gethsemane as he wrestled with what he had to do. And God had assured Adam that if he obeyed, that it would lead to immediate blessing and life, right? But God assured Jesus that if he obeyed, it would lead to immediate suffering and death. He knew this act of obedience. It was far harder than the one that uh, Adam was called to do, and yet he did it. Adam stretched out his hand to take what wasn't his, right? Jesus stretched out his hand to take what wasn't his too, our sin on the cross, and have that hand nailed to that cross for us. And he did it for you. If you trust in Jesus Christ, he reached it. He put Nobody wrestled Jesus' hand, right? When he's put on that cross, he put his hand out. And they nailed it. They pinned him, and it was excruciating. And then he gave him the other one. And he did it for you. Because unlike Adam, Jesus defeated the serpent at the tree. And unlike Adam, Jesus protected his bride. So the question tonight is, are you in Adam or are you in Jesus? It's a different way of asking the gospel question. Are you in Adam or are you in Jesus? Everyone is a citizen of some country, and every single human being without exception is either in Adam or in Jesus. And tonight, you could be united to Jesus Christ just by faith. Just repent of your sin and trust in him. All you need to do is to stop trying to run your own life, Stop trying to run from him and run to Jesus and ask him to take away the penalty of your sin and the power it has over you. That's what we're going to talk about after Easter is the power it has over you. He'll take away both because the Holy Spirit, when you trust in Jesus Christ, what's happened is is that the Holy Spirit has united you to Jesus so that his righteousness is your righteousness and his life starts to flow through your life. It's united to him. You become one with him. And verse 20, I just want to cover it real quick. Verse 20 is kind of interesting how it sneaks in there. What verse 20 is saying is that all these problems of sin and death and all this stuff, you can't solve it by the law. It's kind of obvious, right, at this point. It's kind of obvious that if you're dealing with the sin that we talked about, both inherited guilt, inherited corruption, you know, physical death, all these things, you're not going to solve this with a little religion. Okay, you're not going to solve this with like trying a little harder. Try a little harder and you'll defeat death. No, you need to be rescued. That's what the law is for. Take a look at verse 20. It says, now the law came in to increase trespass. What does that mean? It came in to show you that trying a little harder will not do it. You need to be rescued. The law shows you that you're not just like flailing around in a little swimming pool. The law shows you you're in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Paddling harder will not work. You need to be rescued and you're rescued by being connected to Jesus. And what's so cool about this verse is it also says that whatever sin the law exposes, there'll be more grace to cover it. Look at verse 20 again. It says, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigns in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ. 
The word for grace abounding is superabounding grace. You have superabounding grace. And the reason you have superabounding grace, if you're a Christian, is you're united to Jesus. You're like a part of his body. You know, if there's something wrong with your arm, you don't go like, that's his problem. No, that's your problem. This is your arm. For Jesus, we're a part of his body. There's always grace to cover the sin. And there's always grace to free us from the power of that sin. Let's take the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper reminds us, guys, that we've been united to Jesus Christ. Let me read to you something from the Heidelberg Catechism. It's question 76, and it says this. What is it then to eat the crucified body and drink the shed blood of Christ? And here's the answer. It's a beautiful answer. It is not only to embrace with believing heart all the suffering and death of Christ and thereby to obtain pardon of sin and eternal life, but also, besides that, to become more and more united to his sacred body by the Holy Spirit, who dwells in both Christ and he dwells in us, so that we, though Christ is in heaven and we're on earth, notwithstanding we are flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone, and we live as governed forever by one spirit, as members of the same body, as of a body governed by one soul. Isn't that beautiful? The Lord's Supper reminds us that we're united with Christ, that the Holy Spirit is connecting us to Christ. So Christ is physically reigning in heaven right now. The Holy Spirit connects us to Christ. And as we take the Lord's Supper, we're reminded because we take the bread and we take the cup and we take it into ourselves, right? And what we're reminded is in the gospel, the good news is that you've been taken into Christ, right? The Holy Spirit unites us. And and the Holy Spirit does something amazing when we take the Lord's Supper. He actually makes Christ present to us spiritually. It's a real presence, a spiritual presence, but he feeds us on the presence of Christ. And so it's a remembrance and a feeding. And I just ask you, if you're trusting in Jesus Christ, if if your only hope is you're a part of Jesus' body, so you're going to be treated just like Jesus on the final day and forever, then we invite you to take this with us. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we're sinners, that we have sinned against you in thought and word and deed. We've sinned against you by what we have done and what we've left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbor as ourself. We're very sorry. We're very sorry and we humbly repent. And we ask you for forgiveness. And we're so encouraged as we hold these elements to know that we have received your full pardon in Jesus Christ, that all of our sins have been removed in him. And Father, we're also amazed that you have gladly received us into your own son, Jesus Christ, and you treat us as if we're one with him. Holy Spirit, just as you fed us through the word, we pray that you would feed us through the table. Strengthen us with the presence of Christ through this bread and cup. Fill us more and more with life. Holy Spirit, push out the deadness that's in us. Fill us with the life of Jesus, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. And all God's people said, amen. Let's take the Lord's Supper together. The body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was given for you, to preserve you body and soul unto everlasting life. Take and eat this in remembrance that Christ died for you. Christ died for you. And feed on him in your heart with thanksgiving. Let's take the cup together.
the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was shed for you, to preserve you body and soul into everlasting life. Drink this in remembrance that Christ died for you, that his blood was shed for you. And let's be thankful. Let's take it together. Father, thank you for giving us physical symbols to remind us. To remind us that our greatest problems are solved. We have many troubles, many difficulties, many problems in this life. But our greatest problem is solved. You solved it. We didn't solve it. We pray, Lord, that you would help us more and more to understand what it means to be united with Christ and to live out of that security and power and strength and joy. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.